0: Hey, this is Johnny Mill, and you're listening to the Scene World Podcast.
1: So, it is the Scene World Podcast. I'm AJ, that is Jorg. Exactly. Hi, hi. In a minute, we'll be talking to who will, who
2: will be. Frank
1: There you go. Frank Klipacki, yes.
2: Yep, yep, yep. The famous composer who made um, music for games like Command & Conquer, mm-hmm. um, Blade Runner, and mm-hmm. such things.
1: Stuff like that, yes.
2: Yes, and Dennis and I uh, will be doing the interview.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: And, uh, yeah.
1: Yeah, Cool. Very nice, very nice. Nice, nice, nice. Yeah. Uh, and the...
2: that was that was interesting because it took place on my birthday. So
1: happy I birthday, by the Frank, way.
2: Thank you. Um, so it was last week at, at my birthday. And uh, I told Frank, like, this is the best birthday present ever.
3: Hmm.
2: I mean, it was super um, spontaneous, I would say, in a way, because... When I made the PR planning with Dennis for this year for SteamWorld, he was like, "Oh yes, I know the manager from Frank Lipacki." I'm like, "No shitting!" And I'm like, yeah, do you want to send? Do you want me to send an email to him? I'm like, yeah, definitely. And then, then Frank said, "Yeah, he would be very delighted to yeah. be along those ranks of the other famous game creators, composers, and so on that we had on
1: our list." So and the far. people, even the people that we haven't had on our list, according to ChatGPT.
2: Yeah, which is also interesting. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. We found I found out uh, yesterday that ChatGPT actually knows who we are, wow. and it actually has different replies for the Disc Magazine and the podcast.
1: Yes, it thinks it knows who we are. It's it has uh it it, it has made some errors regarding who we've talked to. Yeah, but that's because of how it works. I believe that it 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 only had a, has access to data up to 2021. So it's, it has scrubbed the internet through 2021. Anything past that it can't get to. And so it but what it can do is it can infer based on what it knows from the past that these are probably people that we would have talked to. And that's yeah. exactly what it did, is it said, you know, though they talk to these people and we're like, What? We didn't talk to those people.
2: <laughs> well, I mean I mean he got um David Crane right, but mm-hmm. that wasn't a podcast interview, but an email interview for the magazine.
1: Right. right. So
2: yes. it was partly right, you know. Mm-hmm.
1: What mm-hmm. it
2: what it actually got totally right was the topics we covered mm-hmm. in our podcast so far.
3: Yeah, yeah. That
2: was impressive, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, like, um, like it went through, like, like it went through the news of our, um, of our podcast episode in the past or something. Anyway, speaking of which, news, um, there was the game <clears throat> Kickstarter that I totally missed called Insane Pain. A okay. 16-bit fighting game for the Mega Drive, which is called Genesis in America,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and um, yeah, and if you are lucky and you are not too slow, you can actually get physical copies or download the ROM files because they have some spares of the physical release. Okay. Which can be ordered off their homepage. So we will link to that. Um, they actually say the game is inspired by the first Mortal Kombat games
3: mm-hmm. and
2: has pre-rendered 3D character graphics like the first Killer Instinct games. Okay. So mine went to shipping today, so I'm waiting for it to arrive. Let's see how how about it. How about it does?
1: Okay, cool. cool.
2: And uh, the game is actually from uh, the, well, indie development studio called um, um, Blast Process Games,
3: hmm.
2: which is a play on the blast processing feature of the Mega Drive slash Genesis. Right,
1: right. Yeah.
2: And here's the interesting thing. Um, the order has to be done via family and friends, Because, obviously, um, the seller wants not to pay for the buyer protection, you know, Uh the fee and stuff with PayPal. So, I had to write, like, in the subject line what the order is for. And, of course, I wrote Insane Pain, MD game. And that triggered... The fraudulent transaction routine from PayPal. Right. <laughs> because insane pain could mean something else. Yes. And that was super weird because, <clears throat> because you know, the German hotline for pay, PayPal Germany wasn't helpful at all. She was like, yeah, you have to be careful what but, but you write. You know mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. you write in the transaction description? Ha ha ha! I'm like, okay, nice. That doesn't ha, ha. help me, you know. Yeah. And um, so the next day after, I was actually chatting with the um, the English PayPal support on the homepage because as um, as they used to. Um, how to say? As they used to send out German emails when I made um, when I made purchases abroad, I decided to switch the graphical user interface of PayPal, like to English. Mm-hmm. So whenever whenever I enter PayPal, I automatically get connected to the English support chat rather than the German one. Right, right. And he actually told me that there is an email address, you know for for the team and it's called compliance transaction at paypal.com and if you email to compliance transaction at paypal.com you can explain <clears throat> what the transaction is for you know and they also I also had to explain why why I'm sending it with family and friends because it was a product I purchased you know and um, anyway 24 hours later after the transaction was pending, and three hours after I sent that email explaining what the transaction is for, that it isn't anything illegal for um, terms of services from PayPal, I actually got the message um, that the payment went through. Hmm. So I was lucky there.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Another person uh, I know, uh, Joachim Hesse, who is um, a, a pretty known editor of Game Reviews and magazines in the past in Germany, he actually had a similar issue when he bought a Mega Drive game and PayPal thought that the name of the game is actually a person. And they asked him, what is the, what is the date of birth from the person? And um, he wouldn't interfere. And it took them three weeks hmm. instead of three days. Okay. Um, to get the transaction going, and they would also um, partly block his account from doing things. So uh, I'm, I'm I'm lucky that this Pavel person from the English chat support was motivated enough to tell me the email address of the team. So I can explain what the transaction is for.
1: Yeah, really. And really. not
2: wait weeks or getting my 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 account partly blocked from transaction, mm-hmm. you know.
3: Yeah. Because
2: they worded like, for now, this is only affecting this transaction. And for now, this means like, hey man, you could lose your PayPal account. I'm like super, that's what I
1: need right yeah. now, you know. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. 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 Well, speaking of games, I got a couple of news regarding awesome. games. Um, one is, um, so there, there's been a game on iOS and Android and whatnot, uh, Plants vs. Zombies, uh, that's been around for a while. Um, and there is now a C64 version, which looks like it's been out for a couple of months now. Uh, uh, somehow it, it, it snuck underneath, uh, snuck be- below our, uh, our our sights. Whoa. um, it looks really good. Um, it seems to be a very faithful. It's called Veggies versus Undead, because obviously you can't have Plants versus Zombies, you know. Um, it says that it works on Pat, it's PAL, uh, and might work on NTSE, but Muppets. the the comments that I'm seeing are that. A lot. Everyone is saying that it works fine on NTSC. Um, so it looks like a really good game. I will put a link to where you can find that. Um, on top well, of working that,
2: fine, working fine usually means
1: the fast. music is too it's slow. Be fast. Yeah, uh, yeah.
2: Too fast. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's gonna too be fast. fast, but that's you know. Um, be, uh, uh, on the other, uh, the other, another game that I have here is that, um, so, so, um, Seawolf, uh, was a game that was released on, on cartridge in 82 for the 64. Wow. Um,
3: yeah, the, the original,
1: the original arcade goes back to 78, but the, but the, the 64 version was put out in, in 82. Um, as of earlier this month, March, um, sea wolf 2 has been released wow which um um sea wolf 2 is is like like i, I obviously there's been a lot of time that's passed between the two as so a sea wolf, wolf 2 fixes weird sprite clipping um it animates the waves like in the arcade you can have tr- wow. a joystick or paddle selection uh there's less flicker adds three more ships from the arcade. Uh, the sixty four only had three, I guess. Um, the sound effects and are updated. Um, there's there's you know ambiance sounds, uh, animations, um, a lot a lot of stuff that they that you that that people didn't know how to do back in eighty two. That they can do now because of things like the demo scene and, and wow. whatnot, um have have gone to uh to to uh uh improve Seawolf 2. So that's available. Um we'll put a link where you can find that. And awesome. um there's another game, also beginning of the month, that I found out about. Um it's called Um Um it's a new it's a new murder mystery called Accuse for the 64 mm. Nice. Um, and it, it is a text adventure type game but with graphics if that makes any sense you know what i mean mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's uh, available for free, although the developers will accept um, donations if you want to do that. Um, it looks pretty good. I haven't played it, but um, the, um, the the developers Marco Gior- Giorgini um, and um, the uh, the the description says that it. Plays a lot like the Commodore 64 classic, The Pawn, which I've never played. But, but yeah, so, um, that exists. Uh, And, um, yeah, that's that's available. We'll put a link to where you can find that as well. Awesome. Um, and that's what I have on my end. Okay. Well, then let's jump to. Frank Lipaki. Yes. Oh, oh. Actually, you know what? Before we do that, I also want to mention that there was a there was a um a product that I stumbled across called the Whopper 64, and I th- and I sent you video. Yeah, but I'm not really sure. But it does. Okay. So what the Whopper 64 does is it sits in your cartridge port. It's a pa- mm-hmm. it's a, it's just a pass through. So you plug it into your cartridge port, your expansion port on your C64, then you plug your cartridge into the Whopper, and the Whopper has, just has a lot of lights that that show you what the computer is doing. Mm. So there's an IRQ light, there's an NMI light, there's, there's address lights, there's, you know, and so when the computer is doing something, these lights just, just blink on and off and let you know what the computer is doing, almost like mm-hmm. a... Like a troubleshooting thing. I've got it hooked up right now. Um, I could actually take my, if okay, if, if if nobody minds the 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 sickness of 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 being moved around, you can see my Ultimate sixty four is plugged into the Whopper, which is nice. lit up okay. like a Christmas tree over there. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, it does. It, it 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 just it's more of a diagnostics tool than anything else. I think. But I, I really I think it's just the fact that C sixty four guys love blinking lights. And hmm. this is just chock full of blinking lights. And it's it's an inexpensive thing. Um, um I'll I'll we'll link to the store where you can get it. It's it really serves no purpose other than just to be something that you can plug in and see lights blink. But I see. Hmm. But but I like it. I think it's awesome. Um so so that that's the thing that exists as well. Um, that 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 I encourage people to check out because it is awesome. because the only way you know I mean it's 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 a small you know developer that's making this stuff. Um, you know, an independent per- you know just one person that's making these things, and the only way that we're gonna that we can support these people is by is by looking at and and buying their stuff and 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 you know. We wanna keep we wanna keep a good market going for the sixty four and, and the amiga and everything else because that's 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 how we that's how we still have jobs doing this. <laughs> so Right, right you know. So and hey, you all know right. if you're the guy that makes the whopper or any of these games that we've talked about, please you know, by all means get in contact with us. We would love to talk to you on the podcast. Right. Nice so, nice. Having said that, let's go talk to someone on the podcast.
2: Right. Now we do. <laughs> okay. <laughs> talk to you then. <laughs> today we have another interview as always, and today our guest is the infamous and very famous Frank um Cl- There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Nice to have you here. Welcome to the show.
4: Thank you. Thank you. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Awesome. Totally awesome to have you here. Especially on my birthday, as I said earlier. Uh, Super, super awesome. It's like one of the best gifts ever, you know, for for me personally. I mean, I remember um, Command & Conquer being my first game I bought from my own pocket money.
4: 1996.
2: And that is actually the title that brought you to fame, kind of, you know.
4: Yeah, I suppose. I mean, uh, it certainly wasn't anything I ever expected uh, to happen in any regard. And happy birthday, by the way.
2: (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Awesome.
4: Uh, Yeah, Yeah. uh, it's fun that we remember, you know, the first things that we, you know, purchase when we finally have, you know, any kind of money or, or whatever. And, and, um. Yeah, back in those in those days, you know, uh doing that first Command and Conquer, it was um to me like just the the most fun job to have, just ma- making music for games and I didn't even regard it as anything that would be uh important to people. I mean, I know it sounds weird to say, but you know, in terms of musically like I always thought like okay, well people are mostly into their favorite bands or their favorite, you know, movie soundtracks or stuff like that, you know, concerts like they're video game music is just you know ancillary you know in terms of how my perception was and so but command and conquer was one of the first games where we actually got to use music the way that it was recorded and played back in the game rather than using midi as we previously did so um i think that had something to do with it kind of pioneering the technology use and um and also just uh the fact that You know, we were. I was encouraged to do a variety of different music in this game, and uh, the intention, in at first, was just to see, okay, well, what would work, and maybe what won't work. And and as they put everything in, they were just like, well, you know what, everybody kind of likes all of it, so let's just keep it all in. And it was just one of those experimental. Uh, games to work on in terms of a soundtrack that, uh, for whatever reason, ended up resonating with uh, the video game public that that, b- that bought it. And um, I'm very grateful that they they enjoyed it that much.
2: Actually, yeah. what was the starting point for going into computer music? When did that all start?
4: So, that started for me um, in high school. Um, well, actually, I should kind of do a little bit of history, backstory. Sure. I started as a professional musician at a very young age, so I, I started on the drums, as you can see, and um, I, uh, I I started when I was about eight, and then by the time I was eleven, I started playing professionally with my parents. So um, at that point, um, I had an understanding of music, but I wasn't in uh, I wasn't a composer yet. When I got into high school, that's when I realized I wanted to contribute original ideas to my bandmates trying to do original rock music and stuff like that. And and I just couldn't speak the language. So I had to learn other instruments in order to do that. So I started playing guitar and keyboards a bit. And and then um, I was already a gamer. So, you know, kind of melded the two together and started programming in basic, you know, how do I make the computer play back music for me and that sort of thing. And then um I uh, found out about uh, the company Westwood Studios. Um, I was looking for a summer job, and uh, you know my cousin uh, recommended that I try out as a tester there. And um, so I so I did that over the summer, and I wasn't a very good tester because I was too distracted with the game development process. I just wanted to walk around and talk to everybody and find out how you do this. I oh my god, that art looks so cool! And how do you put that together? And how does this game work? And, so, um, eventually that led me to the audio director there, and I, you know, got to know him and and jammed with him a little bit, and and uh, so by the time I got out of high school, I was looking for a full time job, and I ran the idea of, you know, like, hey, you know, can you use any help, assistant, you know, intern, anything like that, and so he kind of gave me a shot to prove myself over a few months, and um, and from that point on, I was uh, the full time composer for Westwood Studios. Amazing. Interestingly. Yeah.
0: So um, I have a question. Um, You you told me um, that the music used in Command & Conquer um, was used the way it was recorded. I always thought it was a kind of tracker file or kind of MIDI, or was it just audio streaming? How was the process of uh, converting the music?
4: Yeah, it was audio streaming. It was, um, we converted those into like 24, I'm sorry, 22K mono wave Ah, files. Okay, okay, okay. (laughs) Cool. We played those back that way um and um so that was how we could condense you know the uh, the size of the files yeah uh, in order to yeah. work the game this is before mp3s were invented and all of that so um but and prior to that we did you know midi and stuff like that and and um and but uh interesting that you bring up the tracker thing because i mm-hmm. think version of tracking technology was used for the N64 version of Command & Conquer that we did because okay. they couldn't fit all of the WAV files into the cartridge. So they had to figure out a way to kind of chop it up and make, you know, tracker versions of it, so.
0: Very interesting, cool. Thanks for the insight.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: But but that that must have been, I don't know, um, something like a known ground to you because I saw on your credits, you also did music for SNES and Mega Drive. Um, slash Genesis titles? Be- because most people only know you for your PC games, but you also did game console music.
4: Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you know, uh, the the Genesis uh, was primarily FM synthesis playback, much similar to uh, PC cards at the time, like we used the AdLib card or the Sound Blaster card. Um, and those had uh, a specific chip in them that... Um, Accessed, you know, the FM synthesis that we could, you know, then use to create our own custom instruments and playback, and and uh, the Genesis had the same thing integrated too. Genesis did have a sample playback uh, capability as well, so I would often use that for like drum samples, or we would use it for sound effects, or you know, the voices and stuff like that. Um, Now with the Super Nintendo, uh, we could sample all of the instruments into that, so even though it was still MIDI. I could actually you know, sample my own instruments into that. So like for the Lion King, for example, we did that. Uh, however, it was very, very small sized samples. I mean, we had to really squeeze it into there. Uh, wow. so, Cause you could only like access 11K at a time or something crazy like that. I mean, 11K, think about that. I mean, nobody thinks about K anymore, right? <laughs> uh, so, uh, So that was a challenge. And, um, and kind of the funny story behind that was, um, you know, obviously we're doing something for Disney and they're very, you know, much overseeing the quality of all of the, you know, way that we're integrating the, all of their stuff into the game and, and audio was no different. So, um, you know, of course, Hans Zimmer's company, you know, Hans Zimmer did the soundtrack to the movie and uh, Disney had asked him to send a representative to approve my music. So, and he came over and listened to what I was doing. He's like, Yeah, this is kind of simplified, and you know, I'm not sure. And I'm like, Okay, well, let me explain to you the limitations of the Super Nintendo <laughs> and how we have to do this. And once I gave him that whole spiel, he's like, Ah, okay, I got it. Uh, change that instrument to a bassoon, and we're good. Yeah, <laughs>
2: okay. Oh, interesting, interesting,
4: simple as yeah. that.
2: <laughs> interesting that nice. you mentioned it. Um, playing samples on the Mega Drive because I saw a YouTube video. Like a year ago, explaining that most people um, back in the day, they most coders, uh, programmers, um they did it wrong. they um, used the technique wrong, and the um, sample quality on the mega drive would be much worse than what it what it could have been. There were only a few composers who actually understood how sampling playing on the Mega Drive really works.
4: Yeah, um, yeah, it's, it was just about you know how how did you want to take advantage of the technology and and yeah if if you're if you're just uh, programming it in maybe you're not paying attention to the uh, the quality that you could take advantage of but but you know a lot of that was still dependent on size of of uh, what you could put on the disc. And uh, and if the game was, you know, very large, then, you know, you were still limited and you know, the quality that you probably had to condense things down. So who knows? Um, I didn't do a lot of stuff for the Mega Drive specifically. It was mostly, it was for the Genesis, you know, uh, as it was. And so the sample playback that we utilized was just for that uh, level of it. And then you know, if it was uh, utilizing the Mega Drive, then I don't think that it really made a difference um, because, you know, the original game was was done on the the first version of it.
2: Interesting question. When I interviewed other composers back from the 80s, 90s, many weren't aware of the Paul NTSC speed difference. How was it for you? Were you aware that or did you make sure that your music plays correctly in the European uh, side of things, or wasn't that your concern?
4: Um as long as the the files were to our liking in the in the game the way they were, then you know converting it to you know the other versions wasn't a problem uh, because that technology was you know very universal at the time still. so mm-hmm. um, so that was really wasn't an issue. Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. Okay. well, I'm, I'm just asking because I, I know cases, for example, Robocop three. Where the uh, where the European version plays 25% slower because the coders didn't um, care to you know modify the play routine. As mm. you mentioned back in those old computers and consoles, you had to code a player routine to actually manually play the music. It's, and, and sometimes they were like 60, 50 hearts, we don't care about the difference. As long as the game doesn't crash, we are good.
4: <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, it's interesting, yeah. I mean, it's, those were just like the, the Wild West days of, of you know making games and just technology changed so rapidly during that time period. Like every year that there seemed to be a new console or a new audio card or a new technology to, to take advantage of that somebody came out with. and. So yeah, uh, keeping track of all that stuff definitely, you know, kept us on our toes. <laughs> um
2: you mentioned sound chip of the Atlib sound card for the PC. That must have been OPL two, OPL three from Yamaha. Yeah, yeah. Those those sound chips, right?
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> awesome.
2: It's it's super interesting for me that you still all remember all those little details from like 30, 25 years ago and stuff.
4: Yeah, well, it's interesting because um I kind of uh I kind of took myself down a memory lane a bit. Um a while back I had I put out my own solo albums, you know, usually pretty often, you know, at least every year or every other year. And um one album that I put out was called Conquering 20 Years and the whole idea was that I went through my kind of history from when I started in terms of utilizing the technologies that were available in terms of the scores. So Like, the first song on the CD is called 8-Bit Dragons as a reference to Dragon Strike, the Nintendo entertainment system cartridge, you know, that uh, worked on. So it was, I very much composed something very limited in that capacity where I just utilized the the exact waves that were used by the NES and then uh, composed a piece with only three or four monophonic channels and, and did that. And then the next one I did after that, of course, was an homage to the Genesis and slash the, you know, AdLib Sound Blaster cards. And I took a, a, a simulation of the Yamaha chip that was now available as a virtual instrument. And then I utilized that to compose a new piece in the style of that. And then I kind of just went on down the line, you know, utilizing, you know, Roland, you know, sound canvas sounds, you know, for another one and then on so on and so forth. And then, you know, the limited um, synthesizers that I used even uh, from back in the day. So I kept doing, you know, a gradual you know, escalation of technology of instrumentation that I had utilized over the years in this album as a concept. And, you know, it was just kind of fun to to go down that memory lane trip again. It's pretty
2: cool. Awesome. awesome. Yeah, it's especially interesting because many people are like, I don't care about the old stuff who wants, who wants to remember the past, you know, um, <laughs> But but just recently somebody Somebody made a conversion of the Hellmarsh music piece from *Command and Conquer* Red Alert for the SID, Sid- uh, for the sit chip of the Commodore 64, <laughs> and like, like, wow, you know. So, um, yeah, there's,
3: it's
4: totally a of, there's a lot of There's uh, a lot of chip tune artists out there that you know take the old tech and do new stuff with it, and or do remixes <laughs> with it, and it's it's fun to it's fun to see that when it happens, especially when they do a good job of it, you know, and. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's funny, um, but you know, everything old is new again, right? I mean, everybody loves vinyl. Again. Like, I never thought that would make such a resurgence. Yeah, yeah, true. true. Or um, music cassettes, you know? That like, I, I still yeah. don't know what people are thinking by picking up cassettes again. I'm just like, really? Yeah. Like, that was... Yeah,
2: I mean, just I, recently I got my first Walkman, you yeah. know. <laughs> 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 and
4: you could- Definitely, definitely live in the retro over there, man, it's great. Exactly, exactly.
2: I mean, I mean, I thought it would be interesting for you because I guess most interviews and most panels you attend to are mostly about Command & Conquer, you know, I guess.
4: Yeah, I mean, I, I, obviously I do get asked quite a bit about that um, still, uh, which is fine, you know. I mean, I'm glad that it's got still got a life <laughs> behind it and, you know, we did just remaster those games. So, you know, True. they have, have a new life all over again as well.
3: True.
2: Um, I've read a little story recently that actually you redid the uh, soundtrack of Blade Runner um, because that um, for the game back then, when redoing it actually had a better quality than using the original recording from the movie.
4: Yeah, so, um, you know, the movie, of course, is from the 1980s and that was all done on, like, analog tape, you know, and... Um, and of course it's a brilliant score, you know, and, um, I always loved it. So when we got to work on the game, the interesting, uh, challenge I was faced with was that we had the rights to, uh, the music in terms of the score, but not the recordings. So basically we could recreate whatever we wanted to, but we couldn't just, we couldn't just pull it off the movie score, the movie CD. So, um. So that's what prompted me to recreate some of the main themes from the movie to utilize in the game. And um, I really just painstakingly went note for note, sound for sound, as close as I could possibly get it and, um, you know, spent a long time on that. And, um, yeah, so once and of course, I'm utilizing technology in the late 90s, you know, and everything's digital. And, you know, and uh, so there's no tape hiss and there's no, you know, uh, analog, uh, you know, things you know what do you call it uh, a character you know about it so because of that the recordings were very clean sounding and so a lot of people were commenting on that because they were already used to the uh, movie soundtrack and then they would hear my version go wow this is like crystal clear you know so it was just one of those things where you know taking advantage of uh, modern recording you know quality and and being able to utilize that you know when, when uh working on the game
0: it's very interesting. You mentioned uh, the crystal clear audio. Do you remember um, which synthesizers you used back in the days, or which
4: are us- which you are still using? You have some examples. Yeah. Well, um, for well, for Blade Runner in particular, I mean, so I had I had kind of a general setup that I was using at Westwood at that time. By the late 90s, I was using uh, I had an Ensoniq ASR10 uh, mm-hmm. keyboard. I had a Roland S760 sampling module. I had uh, Roland uh, JD-990, the uh, 2080, uh, later on the 5080. Um, and, uh, and a lot, I had a lot of uh, sample library CDs with instruments on them. And I had one that was, um, or might be a couple of them that focused on uh, analog, you know, synthesizer sounds of of the 80s. And so I was able to find, you know, the instruments that, you know, matched up very closely and, and or were taken from, you know, synthesizers that were used in the Blade Runner soundtrack. So I was able to utilize those uh, and and find the right sounds there. Um, but I used those that same setup for everything else, too, you know, that I worked on, you know, whether it was Command and Conquer or Lands of Lore or, you know, all of that stuff. And um, it, uh, yeah, it was um, what was available. And, you know, every time something new came out that I found interesting or that I could Really take advantage of a lot of uh, new instrumentation. Then I would usually like wait to make a purchase like that, you know, from the audio department's budget and and integrate that. And as we went, you know, we just kept adding to it. And everything was outboard. There was no, um, it wasn't in the box like it is today. You know, we have access to everything in the computer now they're all plugins and virtual instruments. But um, back in the day, you had hardware synths, and that was it. So I had racks of these gear of this gear. <laughs> You know, and it, it looked impressive, <laughs> you know, going that's to my awesome. office and you just see all of this stuff, uh, yeah. big mixing board, all of that. And now it's so funny because all of that is just gone. And all you really need are a good pair of speakers to monitor, you know, the mix and uh, and an interface, you know, in the yeah. rack. And that's it. Everything else is in the box.
0: That's right. That's right. Yeah. So today, basically, you can just make everything, uh, did what you made with your rack uh, just with a copy of Omnisphere, probably, or, or a lot of VSTs, and, and um, that's it. But uh, I still love the JD990 you mentioned, it's, it's also one of my favorite synths. I still have it here, and uh, using all the stuff from Roland, it's okay. pretty cool to hear that you did you make the music with the Roland, Roland yeah. stuff. It's pretty cool,
4: you know. I still so have. I still have the key pieces of gear, uh, yeah. hardware. I still have the Ensoniq ASR10, you know. The, yeah, yeah. Still have the uh, the Roland uh, 5080. I still have the Korg Triton, you know, rack. Cool. You know, actual cool. physical units. Um, yeah. So um, and and those came in handy because uh, when I worked on the Command and Conquer remaster, there was a handful of songs that I could not find on uh, the original dat tapes and so i had to actually recreate them from scratch and find those exact sounds okay nice. really
2: okay so it wasn't so straightforward after all
4: <laughs> yeah most of it was but there was a handful of tracks yeah i was just like damn it i can't find these anywhere like they don't i don't know what happened to them so gotta fire these old babies up <laughs> yeah
0: yeah they still work they still sound great i think yeah. um they are rock solid <laughs> Yeah.
2: I mean I I wonder uh, when you worked on those games did you know that you would re- that you would reach a certain level of fame among certain people you know I mean I mean you your name goes along those other composers you know like Rob Hubbard and so on and so on and um did you know back then that you would um, Make a name out of yourself. I mean, I mean, especially in the '90s. I remember people were often thinking that video games is a waste of time, and you shouldn't put a career into it. And it's not, it's not serious music, and all those, right. you know, pliplop uh, plop, uh, <laughs> weird sounds that's coming out of synthesizer. Who wants to to listen to that?
4: So. Yeah, yeah, the bleeps and blips, yeah. Um no, it's it's interesting. Yeah, the per, like I said, the perception back then was was very much that to the general public and and only the video gamers, you know, really, you know, were into it, you know, in terms of understanding that. Um for me, like I said earlier, like I had no idea that I would gain any notoriety from that. I I didn't think people took it that seriously. Um when Command and Conquer did start to get a lot of attention for the soundtrack, um I kind of was dismissive of it uh I, really? I was like, like in denial like sort of a thing like oh no that just got to be a few diehards talking about it like there's you know there's no way that it could be you know that big of a deal and um so I kind of you know just didn't even think much of it to be honest uh but when Red Alert came out that blew the doors off of it. I mean, people just were like clamoring for the soundtrack and it started getting written up in all these magazines and just turned into this thing and I ended up getting awards for it. And I was just like, wow, okay, this is bigger than I think it is. Uh, apparently there is a worldwide audience for this. <laughs> so. I mean, I
2: mean, I mean, mean, even for the third part, um, Command and Conquer Tiberian Sun, there was actually a day called Tea Day and at least here in Germany, gamers were in queues in front of electronic stores waiting to to buy the command and conquer games nowadays you only see such things if a new iphone is released
4: right yeah
2: you know uh, and those were the times that people actually stood there in hours waiting for for the game you know and 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 it's it's incredible you know it was
0: the iphone of the of the 90s gamers Exactly, exactly.
4: Yes, Back so when physical product was king and uh, people cared enough to, yeah. to wait for it. Yeah. And and, and be there day one. I mean, it was the same thing with concerts back then, too. People would stand stay overnight lined up for the concert tickets going on sale the next day at their local ticket outlet because the Internet was not a thing yet for that. You know, and that, that kind of ruined it, I think, because. Um, You know, once the Internet became available to to purchase concert tickets, well, that meant anyone can purchase tickets anywhere around the world for any city. And so then they all get snapped up like that and, and scalped. So it's just like, you know, that took the fun out of it. Like, you know, if you was local to where you were then, you know, it meant that only people that live there could, you know, get the tickets and then, you know, so be it, you know, if you do what you want after that, but at least it was drawing from that local community pool. And, and then it was the same thing with video games. The video games were available at your, you know, video game stores or electronic stores. And yeah, if something came out, you were looking forward to, then you would be there day one to get it. And uh, that was exciting. You know, there was always, um, something exciting about, uh, you know, that, that sort of camaraderie that you got with you know your fellow gamers or your fellow music enthusiasts or whatever that you know wanted to be a part of that and uh and then immediately just start playing together and get in on the land parties and all that good stuff you know
2: <laughs> it's especially interesting because um when the pc era started like in the really to take off like in the middle of the 90s the old habit of sometimes buying a game because your favorite musician did the music for it. Died, died off. I mean, if you think about it, there are not many other uh, musicians in your in your um, industry that that made made a name out of themselves. Where people are like, okay, it's it's from Frank Kli- uh, Klepecki, you know. So um, the Command and Conquer kind of restarted this thing. People were like, "Oh, he made the soundtrack again. That must be a good game, you know, because yeah. Frank wouldn't wouldn't uh, work on something that is crap, you know." So, <laughs> <laughs> isn't the, isn't that what you think sometimes when you when you see certain certain um, games and they are so awful, but you are still contracted to do the music for it?
4: Mm. Well, I mean, uh, you never really know how it's how some things can turn out, right? I mean. Uh, you you work on something with the hope that you know by the time it the end product is finished that you know it's it's going to play well and you know it's and it's a good game but you know sometimes it's out of your control and um, you know you just you 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 do the best you can with the work you're hired to do for the client and 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 uh, you make it happen. Um, I'm fortunate to have been part of many great games or many people you know that that have loved these games over the years or or still find. Um, great me- memories and nostalgia or you know meaningful things that uh, that brings them you know uh, joy from from those times. Uh, I hear stories you know from from different people all the time about, personal experiences that meant something to them because of these games, like, you know, whether it was, you know, guys that got to rebond with their dads or, you know, family members that were, you know, kind of estranged, you know, but the game brought them together and they'll never forget that because it just, you know, improved everything. and Or, you know, got them out of hard times, you know, somebody was, you know, laid up in the hospital or something with a really bad injury or bad health, you know, issues and, you know, they played this game and then that, you know, just gave them the sort of energy they needed to recover or you know things like that um it's really endearing to hear stuff like that i don't really think of um you know people buying games necessarily based off of who did the soundtrack as much as if the gamers like you know particular composers then maybe they'll Mm -hmm. follow that but um ultimately uh you know i think it is a package at the end of the day you know we are part of a team at the end of the day and i've always uh, looked at it that way. You know, I'm, I'm one piece of the puzzle, uh, to all of these great talents that are contributing to making these things. I mean, there's so much that goes into it. And when you see that day to day, the way that I do, Mm -hmm. you know, you have, you very much appreciate it. Uh, you know, when you see how many programmers it takes to put something together and how many hours they put in to do it, uh, and artists and, you know, and the producers keeping track of all the schedules and trying to do, predict the future as to when something's going to get completed by and you know uh all the way down you know just um it's 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 really and the the designers of course constantly iterating and constantly changing their mind about what's fun and (laughs) not working and what should be redone and it's just it's a constant evolution and um you know, I get to see that uh, happen from day one up until the game is finished, and uh, and I it's a privilege to be able to do that. A lot of composers don't have that luxury, especially if they're contracted and not actually salaried on the company. So they'll be- get brought in at the end of a project and only have a few months to crank out everything, and uh, and hope it works out great. You know, so it's um, yeah, it's it's an interesting mindset for sure. <laughs>
2: Well, or you are a special person. I mean, I remember this story from Rob Hubbard, who was contracted to make the Commando arcade music score on the Commodore sixty-four, and he decided, like, "Oh, come on, I make something up myself." Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, Who cares, you know? And then it became (laughs) one of the most iconic video uh, computer game music pieces ever. By creating something totally different, so basically not fulfilling your contract.
4: Yeah, you know, uh, sometimes you, you take a creative risk; it'll pay off, right? Um, I was very fortunate in the in the old days to be encouraged to always experiment and try new things, and uh, you know, and be creative. You know, think outside the box. You know, like a lot of times, I would come up with something that I thought was literally what was needed, and then I would be told, "Well, you know, that's fine, but..." What about if you did something else, you know, and, and, um, and I, I think I tried to uh, overly understand what was being asked of me rather than just kind of let things, you know, flow. And uh, I had to kind of learn that along the way. And, and I appreciate it a lot more looking back on it now because I realized that that, you know, helped kind of push me a little bit, push my boundaries and, you know, allow me to evolve as a composer, too.
2: Is there something you would improve if you re- could redo it, thinking from the today's perspective? Or are you entirely happy with everything you did in your career?
4: Um, you know, for the most part, I'm pretty happy with everything. There's been challenges that I wish, you know, could have been overcome a bit more, or I might have had more time to work on things, you know. Like, uh, for example, there was a Turbo Graphics game we did called Order of the Griffin, which was um, <clears throat> uh, a D&D game. and uh, the p- issue I had with the soundtrack in that game was that the, um, the Turbo Graphics kept changing the tempos every time we would load back into a level. It would like f- figure f- remember the tempo of the last track and apply it to the new track, and and it was like this bug that I could not escape, and so it just made me very frustrated. So the soundtrack didn't quite come out the way I wanted to on that one, uh, just for the technological aspect of it. Um, then there was a game called uh, Nox that I worked on. Um, and that's one of those games where I just wish I had more time to work on it. Um, I would have, you know spent a bit more time massaging that soundtrack and you know, getting it to a a place that I would have felt a little bit better about. I was just in such a rush to get it out, um because it's like, hey, by the way, we know you're working on two other projects, but we got this other thing, Knox, and that needs to be like done in two months. And I'm like, oh my God, okay. So my brain was just scrambling. You know between you know three different projects that I'm trying to like you know wrap my head around stylistically and it's it's tough to just switch your brain on a dime like that, you know, when I'm going from writing electronic rock music to medieval music and now some sort of fantasy thing and so um you know there's some some nice pieces in that game and i'm I'm still happy with you know how it came out but um I wish I would have had more time on it though so you know, it's just stuff like that um that I look back on. Um, there's nothing really that um is uh something that i don't like or or you know didn't care for it was just more of a a thing of what was the challenge i faced and you know what do i wish was a little bit different you know
2: i mean so far you you must have done really well because you won a lot of awards for your pieces
4: oh some you know (laughs) it's uh it's it's nice to get recognized for that kind of stuff i don't really uh I don't I don't really pay much uh mind to that either, only because, you know, I mean, there's so much great music out there. There's so many talented composers out there. And and uh, I'm a champion of just seeing more creative chances being taken with different games, you know, especially nowadays. I, I just felt like there was sort of a period where a lot of things were being Copied, You know, a lot of styles were being copied and and there was lacking melody, you know, because it was so much trying to mimic like the Hollywood, you know, stuff and and even a lot of movie soundtracks. I'm just like, I don't remember a thing about them because there's nothing to grab onto. It's just a lot of sound design and tribal drums and horn rips and staccato strings. And, you know, what what do you have to walk away from? You know, this is sort of one of the reasons why I cite, you know, John Williams as a main influence for me, because every time I left a movie that he scored, I remembered it. You know, it was impactful and it had a melody and it just, you know, brought you into that experience that much more. Um, and uh, so that's something that I I try to pay mind to when I'm composing things. I try to create something that I feel like has some sort of a hook or is some sort of memorable moment that is associated with a game. And I'm not saying I always hit that, but it's something that's always, I think, you know, deserved to be strived for.
2: I wonder, um, did you have a look what, what other of your industry uh, colleagues did? I mean, for example, you mentioned Adlib, OPL, Yam- Yamaha sound a bit in, earlier. For example, Bobby Prince is a big name. Doing music for Apogee, you know, for for things like Plague Stone and and such such games or Duke Nukem, did you did you were you actually aware of what what other people were doing in the industry?
4: Yeah, definitely. You know, um, like uh, we, we we played a lot of different games too. Like I remember loving the score to like Secret of Monkey Island. You know, uh, Michael
2: Land. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Yeah uh and uh and and uh mcconnell yeah um and then uh you know all of that stuff was really cool and clever um i remember i remember the the fat man yeah george Sanger. i mean he he did uh you know like a lot of games of that same kind of time coming up you know and then obviously westwood was acquired by virgin you know tommy tallarico was working at virgin you know so ended up talking to him you know a bit on stuff and uh and and we were you know pretty close in age so you know, both both youngsters coming up in the industry there, um, yeah. There's uh, and then over the years, you know, there's been you know a lot of game soundtracks that I that I like, or or composers that I've you know really paid attention to, guys like Alexander Brandon, you know, guys like Jack Wall, you know, um, and uh, you know the list goes on and on. I mean, even more recently, you know, games like you know, Ori and the Blind Forest had beautiful soundtrack, you know, or, or Cuphead, loved that, you know, it's just so Cuphead,
3: different. Yeah.
4: Um. So anytime I, I see, those are things that stand out to me. You know, if there's something that's kind of different and and uh, interesting, um, and uh, yeah, you know, um, all of that. I, I love Richard Jake's. is another great uh, composer. does great orchestra stuff and you know big band stuff, funk stuff. you know, I got a chance to meet him and and uh, become friends with him, and he's he's great. So um, yeah, there's a lot of great talent out there, and and uh, I have a lot of appreciation for. Um, I very much uh, kind of stick to the influences and and filters of of my own uh, that have kind of been just part of my style over the years. And and I continue to draw from new influences, but I try to look in new places now for that that I previously hadn't, even if it's, you know, older classical stuff or whatever. Like, for example, uh, the latest game I'm working on is called The Great War Western Front, and it's a World War One based uh, strategy game and uh, RTS and uh so for that I went completely traditional orchestra but I listened to a lot of classical composers from that era in order to kind of you know influence the way that I was doing things so um you know it's uh it's always a a new a new thing to for me to look forward to diving into and and trying to see what what haven't I tried yet and what can I draw from now that's different you know. Do you
0: miss the? Um, sorry. Oh, sorry. But speaking of influences, uh, it's, what's pretty interesting to me, um, coming back to Command and Conquer, of course, mm-hmm. um, the the um, sound was pretty much um, like this early '90s techno and industrial. Were you in, were you influenced by the techno scene back in the days? Were you partying? Were you um, listening a lot to this music? And what what drove to drove you to to make this this kind of music for Command and Conquer?
4: So um when I kind of got the idea of what Command & Conquer was reading the story you know and the factions and all of that kind of stuff um like I said in the early days I I was drawing from a lot of different stuff and just trying different genres of music so it was all over the place and that's why the soundtrack's so diverse but um I definitely listened was influenced by a lot of of the 90s scene uh that led up to that um you know grunge music was new you know um The, uh, the nine inch nails was a band I loved at the time. So I was really into that. And then I, that got me into listening to more industrial kind of stuff. Uh, definitely techno was, um, on all of the dance floors of the clubs at the time. So I was exposed to that, you know, hearing what DJs were playing and different radio shows, you know, college radio and stuff. They would always be playing weird, crazy stuff. And I was, you know, just checking it out and seeing what it was about. Um, I would go to the record store buy cds of compilations of like newer artists and undiscovered stuff that was in those genres just to kind of say okay you know what's kind of on the cutting edge you know what is uh you know what's the new thing coming out here that i'm not aware of and how can i find sound palettes and instruments and weird things to integrate you know voice samples were obviously kind of a trend of that time too and that's why a lot of that was integrated too so um, it was just sort of, yeah, this hybridization of all of these influences that, you know, I was exposed to at the time. And I even brought a little bit of the 80s with me into that, too, obviously, you know, I mean, there was soundtracks like Top Gun that I was a big fan of, you know, Harold Faltermeyer and, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, Vince DiCola from like the Transformers 1986 movie. I, you know, a lot in the Rocky IV soundtrack, you know, synthesizer sounds like that. I wanted to integrate into it. And and um. You know, I I, I uh, was a big fan of you know like old '80s hip hop and and uh, you know the uh, um, electronic sounds of of that era too. So like I found ways to incorporate a little bit of all of these little elements throughout that soundtrack and and uh, taking advantage of sampling technology too and all of that. So it all just kind of fused together for me. Cool, very cool. Awesome.
2: I wonder. And did you have a look about what's coming out um, by Slipgate over THC Nordic working on Tempest Rising, which is cl- like a homage on Command and Conger? I mean, even the fractions are named similarly, you know?
4: Yeah, it's, uh, they're definitely uh, doing a, a love letter to that, which is interesting, yeah. Um, yeah, I got to meet uh, some of the team uh, this past year when I was at uh, Gamescom. Uh, I was there, you know, promoting the Western Front and giving doing a lot of press. But then, you know, at night, you know, you go out to the bars and stuff. And so, yeah, I got a chance to talk to some awesome. of those. It was it was fun.
2: Will you be at Gamescom this year?
4: I don't know. I'm not sure yet. because um, ah. our our game is shipping, you know, at the end of this month. You know, the Great War. So uh, um, after that, yeah, I'm not sure what the plans are. Um, I guess I, I, I guess we can see. Oh yeah, I was going to say, I am going to be planning on um, performing uh, in the Czech Republic in June for a game convention there called Game Access. I think it's June 3rd. I'm playing there with the Tiberian Sons. We're going to do a show down there.
2: That was actually supposed to be one of my next questions, because you mentioned um, Tommy Tenerico, and I I know you also played on the video games live concerts, right?
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've done, Yeah. yeah a lot of guest appearances on those over the years yeah awesome And uh,
2: well i mean perhaps if you know we could meet because we will be there at gamescom dennis personally himself as well so okay perhaps we could meet i mean we always have we always have a booth with our retro magazine there and stuff you know yeah. so so perhaps we could meet if you happen to be there and you could talk about what what your plan is and what you have in the pipe Sure. If if you like, and if you are in in present there, yeah. If, if I have to be there,
4: yeah, that would be fun, definitely. Awesome,
2: awesome. Yeah. So so let me ask you about the concerts. Um, how did it happen for you? How was it for you to, um, play in in front of big audiences for the Tommy Tillerico concert? <laughs> um, your your video game titles that you are known for.
4: Yeah. You know, it was, it was a really great experience. Um, you know, there's nothing like, you know, having a symphony playing behind you. It's great. Um, you know, uh, yeah, I was, I always dreamt about, you know, the idea of performing the CNC music live with a band, you know, and, um, I just never like put it together. Like what would be the right venue or the right place to do it? Or, you know, was there enough of an audience that would come out and see something like that? Like, you know, I was kind of uh, oblivious to that. Um, What was uh, cool about the idea of the video games live thing was that, you know, it brought the greatest hits of video games, you know, played by the symphony, and in in doing so uh, reinvigorated interest in the orchestra for young people to appreciate, you know, this is what they connect with. And why not have that as your doorway into that world. If you were interested in playing an instrument or being part of something like that, you know, you could be an orchestra player that's playing on video game soundtracks now, you know. Um, So it's kind of interesting to me how, you know, a whole generation of people, you know, or a newer generation of people are now uh, coming up this way. And this is the thing that they gravitate towards and what they appreciate about things that uh, before had to usually reference something else. Like in our my generation, you know, we definitely looked at the symphony as playing classical Beethoven, Mozart or film soundtracks. Maybe film soundtracks were the more interesting thing for us, you know, if we weren't classical minded. And so um, so the video game soundtrack thing is really cool. Um, there was another um, uh, thing I guess appeared on, uh, which was the games in concert series they do in the Netherlands. And um, I did one of those uh, which, which, you know, they provided a full, you know, band, you know, for me there. And it was actually a a popular band that was from that area. And, um, and so it was very awesome to have that experience too, and get the reaction, you know, from the audience for that. They were really super into it. Um, I remember, I wasn't sure what to expect, you know, going into a different country and, and playing that stuff there. And so I figured it would be very similar experience to the video games live thing. And afterwards, you know, usually they would have us, you know, you know, around to sign autographs, or whatever. And there'd be some people hanging out and wanting a little bit of something or other, but it wasn't like overwhelmed, but over there, <laughs> that was definitely overwhelmed after I played, I got pretty much mobbed right afterwards. And then, so I said, look, let's wait till after the sh- concert is over. And then, you know, we'll meet in the <laughs> lobby. And, uh, and I was there until we closed the place down at like, you know, one or two in the morning. Um, and uh, it was really just endearing, you know, just to know that there are people that that love that music that much and that and that even came prepared with stuff like they were bringing out old Command and Conquer, you know, <laughs> boxes and PlayStation discs and, you know, all kinds of stuff, shirts, whatever. And uh, it was really it was really cool. It was something else. Um, so, I guess. Yeah. Awesome. I say, so so that led me later on to, you know, the idea that, hey, maybe this could work out. And then, you know, I ended up uh, befriending, you know, the Tiberian Sons band and. Um, so then I, uh, they, they had informed me about this, uh, festival called MAGFest and, um, from there, uh, I contacted the organizers there and they offered me a slot to perform there and so sure. then I called the guys and I said, hey, I got offered a slot. So uh, I guess you guys uh, should be my band, you know. <laughs> so, so we joined forces on that and um, put on a great show. And I couldn't have been happy with how it turned out. And as a result, we're doing more stuff together. So, you know, we got to actually record ver- our versions of that as a bonus for the remastered collection. And then uh, we did an EP together, which came out last year. And that's been licensed for a couple of games uh, and um, and now we're you know looking at what we're gonna do this year, and and you know, one of those things happens to be this concert coming up too. So uh, yeah, it's it's a lot of fun.
2: Cool. I guess this mob, as you mentioned it, I guess many people would say it's the John Romero moment. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because
2: because we interviewed once Prella Romero, and she said that there was a situation in a hotel where John was really like. He's, he, she said he was looking like grandfather's dad or something, but people still were like, John is, John is in the lobby and everybody was mopping towards so, um, that, how did that feel for you? Were you
4: shocked I, about in this situation? I definitely was shocked. yeah, um i didn't I didn't expect to have that kind of reception, honestly. I, so it was it was a, it was an eye-opening event. Um, but actually the the funniest part of it though, was uh, afterwards, after we closed the place down, I was staying in a hotel, like, nowhere near there. Like, the concert was in Utrecht, and I was staying in in Dudingham, which is, you know, further east. And um, so uh, I get off the train, going back to my hotel, far away from this place, and these two, you know, teenagers are, are walking down the street, and they see me with the guitar on my back, you know, and they're like, Hey, Mr. Guitar Guy, play us a song, man. You know, and they're just kind of like, you know, heckling me a little bit. And I'm like, yeah, I already played my concert. I'm I'm done. And they're like, oh, yeah, where'd you play? And I'm like, oh, we played the games and concert show. You're Frank Lovebacky. Oh, my God. We're so sorry. We didn't mean any disrespect. And like, I'm like, "How how do you know me? Like, all the way over here. Yeah, it's interesting.
2: I mean, for you, it's just a job, you know? Yeah. And, uh, Super. It's, it's super interesting. I mean, you mentioned it earlier. There are so many different people working on a game till it's done. But it's interesting for some reason. It's not like people rene- remember a game because of who did the graphics.
4: Yeah. I mean, you know, the un- the unsung heroes behind the scenes, right? Um, I mean, I think that music probably gets uh, a, a bit more attention because of the fact that it's it's an audible connection that is made to the player and, you know, much in the same way that you experience film or TV or whatever. I mean, music is something that uh, is an emotional context for for everything. And um, so if you're any kind of appreciator of music, then that's a memorable thing that will stick with you. Uh, and that's why it's an important part of game development. Um, because, you know, there it does provide that emotional connection. So I, I understand that now, for sure. Uh, back then, I had no clue. <laughs> you know?
2: I mean, I see you
4: also did music in TV shows. How, how is that different, in a way? Well, it's, it's linear, right? So television, film, it's, it's linear. It happens the same way every time. So you get a scene and you score to that scene, and then uh, you line up, you know, the beats to what needs to, you know, happen when, and then that's it. It's going to happen that way every time you watch it. Um, whereas video games, that's not the case at all. The player's in charge of when and where and how they're going to do things. Now, granted, they might be on a bit of a grid in terms of, you know, order of things, but. Uh, But not not often. I mean, you know, there's a lot of games that are more open ended now, so you can go off and do different things or side quests or, you know, or or do things in a different order than than someone else might um, and still achieve the same thing. So you have to have a musical context for the things that are happening at any given time that they decide to do. And so that's the challenge of figuring out, okay, how do I start off this level and anticipate? that he could go one of two or three different places and then have an answer, you know, piece for that. Like, is he going to go straight into combat or is he going to go exploring or is he going to stumble on a special event that, you know, is supposed to happen later, but he might go to that first, you know. Um, So you got to kind of plan for those anticipatory things and uh, and have cues in mind for that or or not. I mean, you could even have A decision to have the music go silent if you want something to be enhanced with ambience or sound effects you know and and have a special moment with that so there's a lot of implementation decision making that goes into uh doing video game scores versus doing something for television or for film where you know it's very like i said very linear and what you see is how it's going to happen you just score it to that and then you're done you know
2: awesome awesome yeah
4: um, I don't know, Dennis,
2: do you have any question right now in the mind?
3: Uh,
0: I don't think so, but probably um, you mentioned before you're still using the, the old synthesizers, but can you mention some some new stuff you're using for your, at least for the electronic part of your music nowadays, what are you using?
4: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, a lot of stuff is in the in, in the plugins, you know, in the virtual stuff. Yeah. So I, I yeah. rely on that quite a bit um you know you mentioned omnisphere earlier so that's certainly in my arsenal um uh uh, serum is one of my favorite synthesizer Mm, instruments um but uh i use contact you know as as a main like sampling playback you know of of a lot of uh, different instruments especially the orchestra stuff Mm -hmm. Uh, you know i use uh like cine samples you know for for orchestral instruments and um for mock-ups and you know if, if it's going to be virtual you know prefer to have live recordings of course when when whenever the budget allows but uh mm-hmm. you know and, and fortunately for for the new game i'm doing the great war we did have uh, a live orchestra record that so that was great um but yeah i use stuff like that um you know those are kind of my main go-to's i guess and i just have a, a lot of different you know libraries of different types of instruments available for whatever uh mood or or hybridization i'm looking to do um and of course i've got you know guitars you know basses, you know live drum set here so i can record myself playing at any of those instruments as well along with that and uh and anything that i don't play i can hire somebody to do
0: so cool cool thanks for the insights very interesting awesome
2: i i wonder i mean we probably heard about the retro craze going on since uh, well, over 10 years now, that even there are new games released for old consoles, like yes. Super Nintendo, Mega Drive, and so on, often b- via Kickstarter or other crowdfunding platforms. I wonder if you were asked and if you got the funding to hire you um, for making a score on a new Mega Drive or a Genesis or Super Nintendo game, would you do it?
4: Yeah, you know, if the the budget worked out then yeah sure why not
2: so you, you would you would not be scared digging in the old electronics again and working
4: on the machines <laughs> no no i mean it's it's still it's still gonna be you know how i remember doing things so just you know gotta d- dust off the memory a little bit but uh, you know it would be it would be fine
2: awesome do do you actually follow what's happening in with with New games on old consoles, or is that something you don't really um,
4: pay attention to a lot? Um, honestly, I, I haven't, uh, I haven't paid attention to a lot of it re- recently. I mean, uh, but once in a while, I'll hear rumblings about something that's interesting. You know, like I've gone to, like we used to have the classic gaming convention here in Las Vegas. And and that was a big focus of it. Actually, you would see guys, you know, with new Atari 2600 cartridges, you know, of new games. And I'm like, really, this is still really happening, you know, and uh, and it's cool, you know, I mean, it's cool that there's still, you know, uh, a market for that, even if it's niche or whatever. You know, I mean, it's it's fun that these these old consoles, I mean, there's there's a, a charm to those, you know. And I I understand that because I have fond memories of playing games on those consoles, and I certainly wouldn't mind going back and and replaying them again, you know, and uh, doing that sort of thing. And actually, I'm I'm quite fond of newer games that come out that echo a retro style. Um, For example, like uh, one game that was kind of recent in the last year, Vampire Survivors, Uh, I really loved playing. Uh, So I, I, I was so... I got so enthralled with it, I just had to unlock every achievement. So I just kept playing it, you know, but it was, it reminded me of, you know, the good old days of, you know, playing like the old SNES games and stuff. So I, I enjoyed it very much for that. I like, I like casual games as much as I love huge sandbox immersion games, you know?
3: Yeah.
2: I mean, I mean, especially as those things became famous when, for some years back, I think it was um, 20... 20- um, 2006 or something, I don't know. I don't know. It's a long a while ago when Gianna Sisters was recreated for the PC, and they they actually didn't ask for the permission to use the music. They they actually they actually got the permission after the after the game was actually um, before it was released. So that yep. was quite 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 interesting. So they did a reverse thing. They they first did the game and then. They used the music and they, they got their license afterwards and Chris Hülsberg was saying like, yeah, I will do the new soundtrack for it, you know, you can hire me for it. So that's kind of risky because sometimes in those projects, um, companies like Disney and so on are actually shutting it down because of missing licenses and stuff. So it's a very dangerous minefield sometimes when people try to make a homage on a game and getting too close to the original things, you know?
4: Yeah, yeah, it just depends on, on, uh, like I said, what kind of licenses are, are available or not. And then you have to kind of, you know, deal with it, you know, very similarly, like I did with Blade Runner, you know, like, like, yeah, you can use the music, but you can't use the recordings. So, you know. <laughs> So yeah, you gotta recreate it, or you know, and then if you can't even do that, then you've got to just come up with something stylistically that's close, you know, and 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 try to just at least make it feel like it belongs in that in that IP.
2: <clears throat> awesome, awesome. So, um, what are your plans at the moment? Can you talk about some that are not secrets, or 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 is are all your plans fulfilled and you are happy in your life and?
4: yeah um no i mean uh everything that i've basically kind of said is you know in terms of recent uh, developments that's that's kind of what's on on the table for me right now um when i'm not doing uh video game stuff i'm uh you know playing playing with bands Uh, i tour on the road with uh, the family stone and so we have some gigs coming up you know that i do in between everything and uh so that's fun um and then, you know, around town in Vegas, you know, I'll, you know, fill in for different groups, you know, playing drums and stuff, you know, just to kind of uh, mix it up. Uh, I always enjoy performing. So that's a big part of you know my life, too, and, and always has been. So uh, I've always kind of had the best of both worlds, I guess you could say. Um, I've, I've always been able to do both of the things that I love, which is, you know, composing music and being involved in audio with games and then, you know, doing the performances. So uh, that's that's really what's on tap for me right now. I mean, just doing more of that.
2: Awesome, awesome. Yeah. So,
4: where can people
2: find you and find your stuff?
4: Um, well, you know, I have uh, I have my website, you know, which is myname.com, and and uh, I'm on all of the platforms. So if you look for my name on, you know, anything Spotify, Apple, Amazon, whatever choice of of music listening is, uh, you know, you'll find all my solo albums on there. Um, I also have a, a a side project called Face the Funk and we have two albums out and it's a band that's very much a funk band of that's my brainchild. I, I sing on that and write all the music and, um, and I have a, a big band, you know, with a full horn section and everything. And so that's, that's something that's uh, a, a fun thing for me. I also have a Patreon uh, just to let, you know, anybody know who's interested in, uh, supporting my, uh, solo efforts and, and videos, uh, moving forward. I have a whole, uh, video, series docu-series on my patreon that goes literally song by song of what i was doing for all of the command and conquer stuff so if you really ever wanted a really in-depth like super in-depth conversation about every track for all of those games, like I'm going into all of it, everything I can possibly remember about who I was talking to, what we were thinking, what I was listening to, what sense I was using, you know, changes that I needed to make, whatever, you know, all of that uh, is is uh, in story form on there, and and uh, and a big part of what that page uh, offers.
2: I'm really glad that you are aware of your importance of the history and your role. In the past and in the present and the future for making video game music, because a lot of people wouldn't talk about it. Like past is past. Who cares, you know? And you're very open about it. It's super, super great.
4: Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um. I mean, you know, I've always been pretty open about it. Uh. I think that you know you have to remember, you know, why people you know like what you do to begin with, and then secondly, you also have to acknowledge that you know the the history and the and the stories behind that stuff is important to to people who really care about it and i'm very flattered to this day that so many people still care about it and so i'm more than happy to share those those stories you know in that capacity you know for whoever's interested so uh you know and i appreciate you guys being interested and caring enough to have me on today so thank you
0: <laughs> <That was laughs> amazing to, hear, to hear all this insight very pretty amazing thank you
2: Cool. Especially for Dennis who knows all those synthesizers and stuff. I have yeah. no idea. <laughs> I'm,
0: just, I'm very amazed to hear to hear the story behind all these sounds and um, thanks so much. Yeah, yeah, you're welcome. Cool. Right.
2: Awesome. That's even better. <laughs> awesome. Like people are like, What? Is that real? <laughs> wow. Awesome. 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 Such a great thing. Yeah. Well, let's hope Gamescom will work out. Would be nice to meet you in person, you know? Yeah, we'll see what happens. I'll keep you posted if I end up down there. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks for taking the time, Frank. Really appreciate it. My
4: pleasure, guys. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Talk
2: to you then. Bye bye.